a discussion about the Army's various missile programs. Good morning, Early Birds. I'm Jonathan Lairfeld, and this is the Early Bird Brief, produced by Defense News and Military Times. Defense News Land Warfare reporter Jen Judson talked last week with Tom Carrico from the Center for Strategic and International Studies about the latest in missile defense news, including the missiles involved in the conflict between Hamas and Israel. They also discussed major news from the recent Association of the United States Army annual conference. This is Jen and Tom talking all things missile defense. Jen Judson, land warfare reporter with Defense News, and Tom Carrico, Center of Strategic and International Studies, missile defense expert. We are here to talk about a bunch of news that's happened in the past month, but I think most relevant right now is what has been going on since the weekend uh, in Israel. Hamas attacked Israel beginning over the weekend. A lot of observations made, but the scale of this is just incredible. So Tom, talk about what you've been hearing uh, in terms of the types of attacks we're seeing. Obviously, many more rockets, I think, than we've seen in the past. But talk about that as well as you know how Israel has been working to defend against this and also what you think might uh, result in sort of an offensive uh, capability as we go forward in yeah. the missile defense realm. Uh, you know, look, obviously the the scale and the speed and the brutality of the attacks by Hamas have just been, you know, pretty devastating, and yeah. the numbers are continuing to go up to a thousand uh, plus uh, as of uh, as of most recent count. It looks like in terms of uh, people killed. The aspect of the air and missile part of the conflict is also pretty interesting. Lots and lots of drones, quadcopter kinds of things to kill observation points and vehicles and distract Israeli forces. Uh, you know, there was these hand gliders that got a decent amount right. of play. With I saw one commentator say, you know, it's a pretty interesting, clever thing. You can also probably only do it once. But certainly, as you say, lots of rockets. I think I was seeing about 2,500 in, in the first day. And then I think IDF said 3,500 in the first two days. Okay. I'm seeing numbers, you know, over 4,000 now, which by yeah. way of comparison, I think it was about 1,100 rockets that were uh, launched in the August 2022 attack. So, but what, is, what does all this mean? You know, it's really the affirmation yet again, but this time and for the first time by a non-state actor of the threat of complex and integrated air and missile attack. So the mixing and matching of lots of drones and missiles all at the same time. And I think it also kind of takes a page from, you know, Russians uh, not having, uh, you know, the qualms to they'll just go straight to civilian buildings and targeting civilians. So not very warlike, very terrorism-like. This is the same thing here, you know, targeting civilians, uh, targeting that population as opposed to going after forces is is both, you know, devastating, but also, you know, I think the scale of this uh, is, is somewhat reminiscent of that um, in terms of going after civilians. A very big hot topic at AUSA uh, that just completed the Army's uh, big conference. You know, there were a lot of questions over, you know, we're supporting Ukraine, we're sending tons of weapons, equipment to them. Are we going to be expected to send things to Israel? You know, how are we going to aid Israel? Will that stretch us too thin, um, the U.S. military too thin when it comes to our stockpiles now? So just curious what types of answers you were hearing to those questions that were coming up, uh, you know, in this big gathering yeah. of military officials um, what are you hearing in terms of answers to those types of questions? Yeah. So I'll say, first of all, to kind of respond to your Russia comments there is, yes, abuses of Russian tactics, 
but in a, in a larger sense, the connection and the discussion about, okay, what does this mean for, you know, USA to Ukraine? Right. If, if anybody's a winner here in the first instance, it's presumably Iran. If this attack mm -hmm. had an objective, it was probably to blow up, got all the, the diplomatic normalization of Israel with mm -hmm. uh, some other parts of the, the Arab world, and that is indeed looking uh, problematic. Yeah. So yes, the missiles and all that, that's part of it, but fundamentally, probably in terms of the, the political aspect, but all, staying with the political aspect and connecting it to Ukraine, you know, Russia's also a big winner here too, because in some respects, look, the Ford has already gone from the Adriatic over to, to Israel true. to kind yep. of sit there and hopefully deter uh, the folks in the north, Hezbollah, uh, from getting any bright ideas about mm -hmm. launching many of their missiles uh, or other forces uh, into Israel. So that's uh, clearly a big point uh, of discussion. And then, uh, you know, I, I heard your interviews, Jen, of Doug, uh, Doug Bush and yeah. Yeah. Dan Carbler and other folks like this. So clearly everybody's thinking, okay, what does the United States need to do? What could the United States do to aid uh, Israel here uh, in its hour of need? Israel has a lot of capability relative to uh, yes. Hamas and Gaza. You know, a lot of this is going to be gravity bombs and bulldozers, frankly, uh -huh. uh, as opposed to sophisticated uh, weapon systems. So, and as Doug Bush said in an interview with you, you know, Israel's got a lot of capability, including on the production yes, side. Yes, they can make almost everything, yeah. you know, that we can. <laughs> Having said that, you know, there may be some short-term uh, assistance or near-term assistance. Uh, I mean, in terms of one thing that's been in, in, in discussion is, hey, can we help them out with with iron domes, for instance? Sure. You know, we have the army couple, has two. <laughs> we have two batteries with a couple hundred missiles. Uh, of course, the U.S. Marines in the process of that's buying right. quite a few more. But you know, it may be that we could help them out uh, in the near term. It's a very capable system. I so mean, otherwise they're just sitting in Washington in, State right now. Um, there haven't been many answers from the Army on what they plan to do with them. So it is an interesting question what it, happens there. It's a hedge capability. We're not worried about the Canadians, uh, but it's nevertheless a <laughs> uh, parked there in Washington State if something some something breaks out in the Pacific. Sure. Again, as much as the IFPIC program hasn't uh, you know, really gotten there, although it's mm -hmm. certainly in, in very high demand. You know, I, I moderated a panel with uh, General Flynn at AUSA. He and the two MDTF commanders, everybody wants to talk about cruise missile defense. We've got to yep. have the cruise missile defense. We've got to get those AIM-9s and the Enduring Shield launchers out uh, just as fast as we can. So there's just constant uh, discussion. I know Secretary Warmoth has, uh, and General George have certainly talked about the, the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, also just circling back to the, you know, how, how do we support Israel, what what is that going to look like? Doug Bush did say, our acquisition chief, that maybe there are some things like parts and explosives that we could send their way, but kind of unlikely that we need to send, um, you know, munitions, for instance, like we are sending to Ukraine, right. um, you know, two million in some cases, but, you know, lots and lots of weapons, but they're not going to need whole weapons. Having said that, you know, yeah. reportedly uh, the, the readout of the call between uh, Netanyahu and President Biden apparently did uh, mention you know, the need for helping out with Iron Domes on yep. interceptors, you know, presumably on the art, uh, on the development side and mm -hmm. the production side. Uh, we did that a couple years ago with, to the tune of an additional billion dollar plus yep. up specifically for Iron Dome procurement. So I wouldn't be surprised if in the coming, you know, year you see a, yeah. a repeat of that. Yeah. Uh, that was a, kind of a big deal on Capitol Hill. I suspect, and this this is another thing to watch for, I think, is what will the Israel conflict do to the politics on Capitol Hill for aiding Ukraine? I'm thinking especially yeah. the House politics. And so there are some <laughs> folks saying, hey, you know, could we cobble together that package, another package for Ukraine with a package for Israel? So mm -hmm. so that'll be interesting to watch. It's also interesting that there are, you know, folks that don't want to continue to aid Ukraine, but they're those the same folks that would absolutely jump 
to aid Israel. And so it'll be interesting to see those types of debates uh, unfold on the Hill. It's a fascinating phenomenon. The same folks (laughs) who said, couldn't possibly spare another uh, round of 155. Don't seem to be raising the same questions there, but uh, that may may be too complicated for me to explain. Looping back also to to cruise missile defense being an important area of discussion right now, we are seeing the Army beyond Iron Dome uh, talk, I think, more at AOSA about, you know, the next thing for for the indirect fires protection capability, they are currently rolling prototypes out. That's pretty new, and they're getting ready for operational tests. So making progress there, uh, many would argue that this has been taking forever, and this is why we have Iron Dome. But one of the things uh, that recently came out, you know, they've, they've recently, I think, approved some requirements, and they're going to be able to move forward on a competition for a next interceptor currently that's just the AIM-9X. They're looking for a new one. So I think that'll, once again, give uh, actually an uh, Israeli company uh, the opportunity to get back into the game, uh, Raphael, along with Raytheon, their partner, to uh, submit the Tamir Skyhunter, it's called in the U.S., um, to the uh, IFPIC Next Interceptor program. But I think a lot of people forget, too, with Iron Dome, that is a long-time co-development effort uh, with Israel. So, yes, they, you know, they have all that capability to produce and to field Iron Dome, um, you know, from the launcher all the way to, to the missiles that go in it in country. But, you know, whether they need our two extra Iron Domes or not, I guess will be the question that gets answered. I would react to that, which is, you know, there's two things going on. One is obviously we need the, the, the AIM-9s uh, deployed, uh, as well as the second missile, uh, which mm-hmm. could be a Tamir or Tamir-like yeah. thing. But then also there's the DE side mm-hmm. of IFPIC. And, you know, as, as you've reported, there's been lo- some, I guess, some setbacks mm-hmm. on that. It, mm-hmm. The Army went very strong, 300 kilowatt, you know, ambitions. And, you know, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to have the sophisticated technology and to have it in a package that is rugged and able to be, you know, operated out in the field uh, with all these the optics and, and what have you. So so perhaps not surprising that that's a little bit of a setback. But closely related to that is, you know, some of the other uh, short-range air mm-hmm. defense stuff. Yep, which is there's to say, also a directed energy solution for that, too. Yeah, so. the, 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 the Stinger follow-on, the next-generation short-range yep. interceptor. Everybody and their brother once stingers mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, you've seen what good use they were used in Ukraine. Everybody wants them. And so, you know, it'd be interesting to see if that NGSRI, yes. uh, next generation uh, short range interceptor, uh, is accelerated in some manner. Yeah. They are moving forward relatively quickly with it, but I still think that potentially they could move a little bit more quickly. This is still years away at this point. Um, anything else that you heard or uh, noticed at um, AUSA? You know, obviously we're walking miles of uh, expo floor with every industry player around, um, showing off what they have to offer. Um, anything you spotted that you thought was interesting um, when you were attending AUSA? You know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of drones. <laughs> yes. Uh, and that was true of last year as well, but just a lot of stuff out there, including with interesting uh, payloads on them. Mm-hmm. I saw some directed energy payloads on, on you know, small, small, medium-sized quadcopters, mm-hmm. uh, as well as lasers and uh, uh, and, and just actual rifles, things yeah. like that. <laughs> so, so, so certainly lots of those flying around, buzzing around, and then also lots of, of course, uh, army aviation, lots of helicopters, yes, uh, as well. I think some of the things that I you know spotted was like a lot of counter UAS, but moving down into smaller, smaller platforms like robotic combat vehicles, as opposed to a large 
robotic combat vehicles as opposed to a large platform like a striker, for instance. Um, you know, of course, we I did see a counter UAS striker on the floor, but also I even saw a short range air defense capability on a robot um, at the at the show. So, and it, that was the turret that goes on striker. So. It's pretty interesting to see how all that evolving onto robotic platforms as well. You know, that's actually, it's the demand signal for that SHORAD. It's the demand signal for that counter UAS. The, the, the turret, the RIP turret that goes on top of the striker, it's been fascinating to me to see the dozen different things that have been kind of hanging off the side of it yeah. over the years. And I think <laughs> you're going to see, take it off the striker, make it a dismounted turret, put it on a, a pallet or put it on the back of a truck or something like that. I think given the scope of the UAS threat, we're going to have to look at all kinds of imaginative yeah. applications uh, yeah. of that. Secretary Warmoth uh, mentioned during uh, an event with you at CSIS about how we really need to think about even putting, you know, counter UAS capability to protect, say, you know, ground air defense uh, capability, having that as part of units, like really putting counter UAS within many different units because that threat is everywhere. Um, so every single unit on the battlefield is going to have to be able to uh, counter those Yeah, things. and that's, you know, that's the principle of, of taking the composite units of mixing IFPIC and Patriot and IFPIC and uh, MSHORAD with CUS. You're going to have to mix and match because you don't get to decide what gets, what gets attacked by by UAS, yeah. they do. Yeah. The Army's artillery strategy is nearly out. Um, so I did see some interesting stuff related to that on the floor coming from industry, kind of showing the Army, like, if we can't make the extended range artillery cannon work, and, you know, no secret there, they're having a lot of issues with engineering. And, you know, it's possible they may need to keep that longer in research and development, or they may, you know, we don't know what they're going to decide. You know, they may decide to go with something else. The requirement isn't going to go away. So, um, you know, we did see, I saw 52 caliber gun tubes instead of 58 caliber gun tubes on things. Um, I saw autoloader capabilities. That's another thing. How do we increase the rate of fire of these systems? I saw... Uh, ramjet projectiles uh, that had um, record-breaking tests in terms of, of meeting range requirements, fired from IRCA and other uh, howitzer systems. And so we're seeing kind of the realm of the possible of what industry can do to provide this requirement to the Army if we don't see the IRCA cannon, for instance, come to fruition anytime soon. Um, so that was a, that was kind of a big theme as well. Yeah, I tell you, the maneuvering or the guided artillery, whether it be ramjet or whatever, right. You know, keeping in mind the PRISM uh, increment 4 has an ramjet to give it that yes. longer gliding mm -hmm. boost. You just keep seeing lots of those things as we think about these you know, older delivery systems, whether it be yeah. artillery or whether missile, but we add something different to it to give it that push. And on that front, I would say there's, there's another thing I think we're going to hear more about in the coming weeks and months, uh, and that is um, ground launch small diameter bomb. Okay. It's been in the news a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very interesting, I think, uh, prospect here, especially for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And you know, in the, in the past month, it was announced that we're going to be sending ATACMs. Probably not going to be very many. You know, you, we have thousands of them lying around. That's right. That was built for when, you know, situations where we have air superiority and put a rocket on the back of it mm -hmm. and use it against, uh, for a standoff capability against a, a Russia. Yeah. So I think look for that. 
more attention to that in the coming in the coming months. Today, the strategic posture review was released. What have you seen of any significance in that? Uh, anything jump out to you from that review? Mm. Yeah, I, I'll be honest. It just came out a couple hours ago. I haven't <laughs> really digested it okay. yet. <laughs> uh, there's a couple things. One, you know, I think there's some some decent language in there about the need to defend uh, the United States, CONUS at least, against uh, what it calls coercive missile attacks, including from Russia and China. I'm not sure how new that is. I think NORAD has kind of been on that game for certainly the cruise missile defense thing. We had a big report on uh, defending the homeland, cruise missile defense, air defense. Uh, but it's, it's good to see. It's good to see that. Uh, the other thing that the report had that I've seen so far is it had a recommendation about one of our favorite topics, Jen, transition and transfer for missile defense. It said something to the effect of missile defense agencies should, should transition uh, operations and sustainment to the services by this time next year or something. The head scratcher of that was it said operations and sustainment, but not procurement. Well, operations and sustainment has already been That's transferred. That's already the case, yeah. Uh, procurement, which is the big question mark and the controversy, that word wasn't in there. So I'm, yeah. it's, I'm a little bit of a head scratcher uh, in terms of, uh, of what that means, but I'll, I'll look forward to that, reading it. Uh, I think another uh, interesting thing that came out in the news I, since the last time we talked, um, potentially, I think, uh, is the uh, on the missile defense agency side, the glide phase interceptor to take out hypersonic uh, weapon threats, hypersonic missile threats. There's been talk about the Japanese uh, sharing co-development with the U.S. on this uh, GPI capability, but there was an announcement that came out on that that they will be moving forward on an agreement. What are some things that you're thinking about when it comes to uh, this co-development agreement? Um, you know, obviously this isn't the first time that Japan and and the U.S. have worked together on a uh, missile program. What are some of the things that need to, I guess, lessons learned to take from the previous uh, experience and apply yeah. here? Look, it, it's, it's I think, a, a tremendous uh, diplomatic uh, milestone here. Uh, it was announced by, the, by President Biden uh, and uh, Prime Minister Kushida. And then shortly thereafter, uh, the Japanese announced that they were going to put 75 billion yen specifically for uh, glide phase interceptor, which is about 500, just over $500 million, okay. which is considerable. Yeah. And it's unclear how many years that's spread over, but mm-hmm. uh, consider that the United States is currently only putting about $200 million into the GPI program. So that's that's not bad. Yeah. Uh, that's also why the GPI uh, fielding date is right now in the mid-2030s, no yeah. kidding. So I think the most important thing for this is going to be scheduled. And you mentioned that this is, in some respects, a follow-on to the SM32A mm-hmm. Cooperative Development yes. Program, uh, which is, again, a bit of great success uh, in terms of U.S.-Japanese uh, defense cooperation. But we're going to need to be really attentive to look at how we can do this fast mm-hmm. uh, and to keep the unit costs down. Yeah. Uh, in terms of making this real and sustaining it, and by delivering it at the speed of relevance. I know you are soon headed to a multinational conference in Hawaii. So what are you sort of hoping to take away from this? Um, what are you going to be looking out for uh, at that conference? Yeah, so this is uh, sort of the annual uh, conference that the Missile Defense Agency puts on. People from all over the world uh, that are involved in missile defense cooperation come out for that. I'll tell you, the GPI, and the hypersonic defense thing, is certainly going to be a big topic, likewise. Uh, space sensors. Yeah. Uh, but I think a lot of the capacity issues we talked about in terms of production and mm-hmm. likewise mm-hmm. the uh, just the usual interoperability integration. How do we know getting work together? You've seen the past year some really remarkable kludging together of all these disparate air defense systems from Stingers to, to Iris-T to SAMP-T and all this kind of stuff. And so I think uh, I'm hoping that that'll be an interesting uh, 
point of discussion. That's it for us this morning. To get more of the top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com slash EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted by me, Jonathan Lairfeld, and produced by Zimone Z. Perez. If you enjoyed our conversation today, be sure to check out Jen's work at defensenews.com. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Gruse. Have a great day.